Section 58 of Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1, Section 58. Chapter 17, Religious Disunion in the 5th Century, by Alice Gardner, Lecture of Newnham College, Cambridge. The importance of the religious controversies of the 5th century must strike the most casual reader of history, but when we approach the subject closely, we find it a tangled skein. Questions of dogmatic theology and of ecclesiastical authority are intermingled with the conflict of national ideals and the lowering of strife of personal rivalries. Only later are the lines of separation seen to indicate ancient ethnic differences. Nor does this century, more than any other century, form for our purpose one connected and distinct whole. The antagonistic forces had been gathering to a head during the preceding period, and they had to fight the battle out in the days that came after. Nevertheless, it is possible within limits to distinguish the more important of the elements making for ecclesiastical disunion, and also to mark the chief acts of the drama that fall within the limits assigned. First, then, we have to do with the opposition of two rival schools of thought, those of Alexandria and of Antioch, the homes of allegorical and of literal interpretation respectively. Next we have the emphatic assertion of authority and rejection of external interference by the great seas which before the end of our period have obtained the title and status of patriarchates. So far we seem to be concerned with forces already known in the Arian controversy, but in both respects there is a difference. The dogmatic difference between Alexandria and Antioch was, in the 5th century, quite unlike that of Athanasius and Arius in the 4th, though the theologian may discern hidden affinities in the parties severally concerned. The disputants on both sides in the controversies we are to consider were equally ready to accept the creed of Nicaea, and indeed to accuse their opponents of want of loyalty to that symbol. And with regard to spheres of authority, a new complication had arisen. At Nicaea 325, the rights of the great seas of Rome, Alexandria, and Antioch had been maintained. Byzantium counted for nothing. In fact, authorities differ on the question who was bishop at that time, and whether he attended the council in person or by deputy. But at the Second Council, that of Constantinople in 381, besides a strict injunction against the intervention of bishops in places beyond their jurisdiction, there was an assertion of the prerogative of the Bishop of Constantinople next after the Bishop of Rome, because Constantinople is New Rome. The last clause asserted an important principle that might easily lead to Caesaro-papacy, for the other great sees were supposed to hold their high position in virtue of apostolic tradition, not out of coincidence with secular dominion. Constantinople might, and did, discover that it too had an apostle for its patron, namely St. Andrew. But St. Andrew's claims were vague and the imperial authority and court influence were pressing. 
the decision was but doubtfully accepted in the East, and the distinction, if allowed at all, was taken as purely honorary. In Rome it was never received at all. We cannot wonder that the bishops of Alexandria, in their far-reaching aims and policy, were unwilling to allow such power or prestige to the upstart see of the queenly city, and that sometimes the bishops of old Rome might support their actions. It is not, of course, to be supposed that all the ecclesiastical dissensions of the period can be comprised in the quarrels between the great seas, although, for our present purpose, that series of conflicts seems the best to choose as our guiding line. Though the Arian heresy lived vigorously all through the century, it had become for the most part a religion of barbarians. It was not so much a source of disunion within the empire as a serious, perhaps insuperable, obstacle to a good understanding between the Roman and the Teuton. The Arianism of the Ostrogoths was at least one of the most prominent weaknesses of their kingdom in Italy, but the empire, generally speaking, was Nicene. The only regions which had not adopted, or were not soon to adopt, the definitions of the first general council lay in the far east, beyond the limits of undisputed imperial sway. When these are brought into the general current of church history, they take one side or another in the prevalent controversies with very conspicuous results. Again, the Pelagian controversy on free will and original sin will not here concern us in proportion to its theological and philosophical interests. Though its roots lay deep and ever and anon put forth new shoots, it did not result in a definite schism. Taking then the main lines of controversy as already indicated, we may distinguish four phases or periods within the fifth century. In the first we have an attack on a bishop of Constantinople, a representative of the Antiochene school, by an archbishop of Alexandria. Rome sympathizes with Constantinople, but Alexandria triumphs for a time, in general part by court influence, Chrysostom controversy. In the second, Alexandria again advances against Constantinople, the bishop of which is again Antiochene. Rome, in this phase of the conflict, sides with Alexandria, which prevails. Court influence is divided, but gradually comes over to the Alexandrian side, Nestorian controversy. In the third, Alexandria is again aggressive and prevails over Constantinople by force. Rome fails at first to obtain a hearing, but helps to get the doctrinal point settled in another council. Eutychian or Monophysite controversy. In the fourth, the controversy is caused by an abortive attempt started by an emperor but manipulated by the bishops of Constantinople and of Alexandria working together to reunite some at least of the parties alienated by the decision of the last conflict. Rome disapproves strongly, and the result is a serious blow to imperial authority in the West, Henoticon controversy. Part 1. The chief persons then in the first controversy are Theophilus of Alexandria and Chrysostom of Constantinople. The doctrinal question is not to the front, and the interest is in the great part personal. 
This is, in fact, the only one of the controversies in which one side at least, here the one on defense, has an imposing leader, but perhaps it is the one in which it is least possible to find any reasons beyond motives of official ambition or of personal antipathy. The beginner of the attack, Theophilus, who held the Alexandrian Sea from 385 to 412, has earned a bad name in history for violence and duplicity. He was probably not more unscrupulous than many leading men among his contemporaries and excelled most of them in scientific and literary tastes. But he has incurred the odium which attaches to every religious persecutor who has not the mitigating plea of personal fanaticism. Another excuse might be alleged in extenuation of his unjust actions, the excessively difficult position in which he was placed. The peculiar character of the government of Egypt, its close and direct connection with the imperial authority, and the absence, except in the city itself, of any civic and municipal institutions always rendered a good understanding between bishop and prefect one of the great desiderata. The history of the sea and of its most eminent occupants had given it a prestige which was not easily kept intact without encroachments on the secular power. Alexandria had from the beginning been a city of mixed populations and cults, and at this time the factions were more numerous and the occasions of disturbance as serious as in the days of Athanasius. Arianism may have been quelled, but paganism was still vigorous, and had adherents both in the academies of the grammarians and philosophers, and also among the most ignorant of the lower classes, who even anticipated disaster when the measuring gauge was moved from the temple of Serapis to a church. The Jewish element was large, and the broad toleration of Alexander, the Ptolemies, and the pagan emperors was hardly to be expected in the stormy days which had followed the conversion of Constantine. But more difficult to deal with than prefects, town mobs, philosophers, or Jews, though a more powerful weapon to use if tactfully secured, was the vast number of monks that dwelt in the desert and other regions within the Alexandrian Sea. These did not constitute one body and were very dissimilar among themselves. The rule of those who had a rule will be set forth in the following chapter. Here we have to notice the difficulties which the soaring speculations of some, the crass ignorance of others, and the detachment of all from worldly convention and ordinary constituted authority placed in the way of any attempt to bring them within the general system of civil and ecclesiastical order. Theophilus was himself a man of learning and culture, eclectic in tastes, diplomatic in schemes. He had used his mathematical knowledge to make an elaborate table of the Easter cycle. He favored in later days the candidature of a philosophic pagan, Synesius of Cyrene, for the bishopric of Ptolemais. He could read and enjoy the works of writers whose teaching he was publicly anathematizing. He appreciated the force of monastic piety and endeavored, by vigorous and even violent means, to impose episcopal consecration on some leading ascetics. 
he showed his powers as pacificator in helping to compose dissension in the church of Antioch, 392, and in that of Bostra, 394. He obtained from the civil authority powers to demolish the great temple of Serapis, which was done successfully, though not without creating much bitterness of feeling. The great campaign of his life, however, began with an attack on the followers of Oregon at the very beginning of the 5th century. There seems some paradox in the circumstance that the strife between the Alexandrian and the Antiochene should have begun, as far as our present purpose is concerned, by an attack made by an Alexandrian patriarch on the principles of the most eminent of all Alexandrian theologians. Theophilus was, both before and after the controversy, an appreciative student of Oregon. He had already aroused a tumultuous opposition from some Egyptian monks who were practically anthropomorphites by insisting on the doctrine laid down by Oregon as to the incorporeality of the divine nature, that God is invisible by reason of his nature and incomprehensible by reason of the limits of human intelligence. The line he now took up may have been due to the influence of Jerome, at that time organizing an anti-organistic crusade in Palestine, or else, in his opposition to the philosophic paganism of Alexandria, he may have become nervous of any concessions as to the aeons and gnosis and final restitution, or again, as seems most probable, he saw a powerful ally in his ambition for his see in the grossest and least enlightened theology of his day, that of the unhappy monk who wept that they had taken away his god, when in the earlier stage of the controversy the doctrines of the anthropomorphites were condemned by the man who was now their champion. Having determined to combat organism, Theophilus called a synod to Alexandria which decreed against it. He followed up the ecclesiastical censure by securing from the prefect the support of the secular arm. An attack was made by night on the settlement of those monks in the district of Nitria who were supposed to be imbued with the organistic doctrine. The leaders of them were the four tall brethren, monks of considerable repute, formerly treated by Theophilus with great respect. Hounded out by soldiers and by the rival anthropomorphite monks, the tall brothers fled for their lives and after many vicissitudes arrived in Constantinople and appealed to the protection of the bishop John Chrysostom. In position and in character, Chrysostom bears a marked contrast to his opponent Theophilus. Both, it is true, were men of learning and culture. Both were exposed to the caprices of a pleasure-loving and much-divided populace. But Chrysostom had one disadvantage more. He was under the immediate eye of a court. It was by court influence, unsought on his part, that he had been elevated, and the same influence could easily be turned against him. The emperor Arcadius was of a sluggish temperament, but his wife, Eudoxia, a Frankish lady, was violent in her likes and dislikes, sensitive, ambitious, and inspired by a showy and aggressive piety. 
John had led the sea since 397. In early days he had studied under the pagan Libanius at Antioch, and later he had been trained in the theological school of that city. He was an intimate friend of Theodore of Mopsuestia, the most eminent leader of Antiochene thought, whose principles in the next stage of the controversy came to the front. Himself a practical teacher rather than a theological systematizer, he had devoted his power and eloquence both in Antioch and Constantinople to the restraint of violence and the denunciation of vice and frivolity. He had in earlier days followed for some years the monastic life and was always ascetic in self-discipline and tactless towards those under his authority. He had been brought into public prominence during the anxious time in 387 at Antioch after the riot. On his appointment at Constantinople, he showed great firmness in resisting the demands made upon him by the minister Eutropius and subsequently in negotiations with the Gothic general Gainus. He preached much, and his sermons were intensely popular, for the people of Byzantium, however mixed, were sufficiently Greek to enjoy good speaking. But John seems to have done more than excite a transient enthusiasm. A good many Constantinopolitans, particularly some well-born women, devoted their lives to the works he commended to them. By his clergy, as might be expected, he was both well-beloved and well-hated. Just at the time when Theophilus was beginning his attacks on the organistic monks, Chrysostom was starting on an expedition which was the beginning of all his troubles. Complaints had been brought to him of the bad conduct of the bishop of Ephesus. He sent to make inquiries, and though the accused bishop had in the meantime died, Chrysostom was requested by the clergy and people of Ephesus to come and settle their affairs. Accordingly, the first three months of the year 401 were spent by him in a visitation of Asia in the removal of many clergy and the putting down of much corruption. No doubt he considered that he was acting within his rights according to the canon of Constantinople and the precedent set by the previous bishops. But he had given a handle to the rival see of Alexandria. Worse than this, his absence had led to difficulties at home where Severianus, a wandering bishop whom he had left as locum tenens, and Serapion, Chrysostom's archdeacon and friend, had quarreled beyond hope of reconciliation. On his return, Chrysostom judged Severianus to be in fault and thereby affronted the empress who had taken delight in Severianus's sermons. With so much of combustible elements about, the arrivals from Egypt were likely to cause a general conflagration. Chrysostom received the tall brethren courteously and admitted them to some of the church services, though he hesitated to receive them into full communion till the charge of heresy hanging over them had been removed. He seems to have wished to avoid any provocative measures, but the brothers, anxious to remove the slur, or perhaps stirred up by some sinister interest, appealed to the empress as she rode down the streets in her chariot. 
The result was that Theophilus himself was summoned to Constantinople to stand a charge of calumny and persecution, with darker accusations in the background. He came, but, though nominally accused, he actually took the role of accuser. Before Theophilus himself arrived in Constantinople, he showed the measure of respect in which he held that see by inducing his friend Epiphanius, bishop of Constantia in Cyprus, to go thither on the business of Oregon. Epiphanius had a reputation for piety and zeal, but seems to have traded on that reputation and on his advanced years in going beyond all bounds of courtesy and even of legality. He came with a large following of bishops and clergy, began his mission by the ordination of a deacon, an act of defiance to Chrysostom's authority, refused the hospitality offered by the bishop, and endeavored by colloquies with the clergy and harangues to the people to obtain the condemnation of organ which Chrysostom refused to pronounce. He returned baffled, but soon after Theophilus himself appeared at Constantinople and speedily gathered a party among those who had, from any reason, a grudge against Chrysostom. Strange to say, the organistic question retired into the background. Some of the bishops and clergy at Constantinople were greatly attached to the writings of Organ, with which, as we have seen, Theophilus had a secret intellectual sympathy. The charge of Organism was brought against some of John's adherents. The charges preferred against himself were either trivial or very improbable. If any of them were founded on fact, the utmost we can safely gather from them is that John may have erred occasionally by severity and discipline, and that his ascetic habits and delicate digestion had proved incompatible with generous hospitality. It is hardly necessary to say that Theophilus was acting without a shadow of right, he had 36 bishops with him, and many more were coming from Asia at the emperor's bidding. Chrysostom had 40 who kept by his side. The strange phenomenon of a dual synod will be met again in the next conflict. Theophilus had the support of the court, but he did not venture to pass judgment within the precincts of the capital. A synod was held in the neighborhood of Chalcedon, on the Asiatic side of the Bosporus. Theophilus was present and presided, unless the presidency was held by the old rival see of Heraclea. John refused four times to appear, and a judgment was passed against him. As to the tall brethren, two had died, and the other two made no opposition. A tumultuous scene followed in Constantinople, but John, rather than become a cause of bloodshed, withdrew under protest. But he did not go far from the city, and in three days he was summoned back. Constantinople suffered at this time from a shock of earthquake, which seems to have alarmed the empress, and the dislike of Egyptian interference stimulated the desire of the people of Constantinople to recover their bishop. Arcadius sent a messenger to summon John home. 
John at first prudently declined to come without the resolution of a synod, but his scruples were overcome and he was reinstated in triumph. But his return of good fortune was not of long duration. What the court had lightly given, it might lightly withdraw. The new cause of offence was a remonstrance made by Chrysostom, who objected to the noise and revelings consequent on the erection of a statue of the empress close to the church where he officiated. Eudoxia's blood was up. Report said that the bishop had compared her to Herodias. He had possibly compared his duty to that of John the Baptist, and his hearers had pressed the analogy further. He had previously made a quite pertinent comparison of her court clergy to the priests of Baal, who did eat at Jezebel's table, and the inference had seemed to be that the empress was a Jezebel. A synod was hastily convoked. Theophilus did not appear this time, but John's opponents were now sufficient. He was accused of violating a canon of the Council of Antioch, 341, in having returned without waiting for a synodical decree. Insult was here added to injury. The canon had been passed by an Arian council. The violation of it had been due to imperial pressure, but there was no way of escape. Amid scenes of confusion and bloodshed, John was conveyed to Caucasus on the Armenian frontier and afterwards to Pityus in Pontus. His steadfastness under persecution, the letters by which he sought to strengthen the hands of his friends and disciples, and the efforts of his adherents, besides producing a great moral effect, seemed likely to bring about a reversal of the sentence. Pope Innocent I wrote a letter of sympathy to Chrysostom and one of strong remonstrance to Theophilus, to whom a formal deputation was sent. To the clergy and people of Constantinople, he wrote a vigorous protest against the legality of what had been done and asserted the need of a council of East and West. But for such a council he could only wait the opportunity and faith and patience. He did all he could by laying the matter before the Emperor Honorius at Ravenna. A deputation of clergy was sent from Emperor and Pope to Constantinople. On the way, however, the messengers had their dispatches stolen from them, and they only returned from their bootless errand after many dangers and insults. Meantime, the fire was allowed to burn itself out. The sufferings of Chrysostom were ended by his death in exile in September 407. There were still adherents of his in Constantinople who refused to recognize his successor, as did also many bishops in the West. The breach was healed when Atticus, second bishop after Chrysostom, restored the name of his great predecessor to the diptychs, or tablets, on which the names of lawful bishops were inscribed. It can hardly be said that this part of the controversy was ecclesiastical in the strict sense of the word. It made no new departure in church doctrines and disciplines, but it revealed the more or less hidden forces by which succeeding conflicts were to be decided. End of section 58